Hey everyone, welcome to Love, Rinse, Repeat, a podcast recorded on Gay Omago Land by me, Liam Miller. He is a minister in the Uniting Church in Australia. My guest today is a good friend, uh, Jonathan Foy. John, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on. Very much appreciate being here and I think... um, I think I'm probably going to be the first person to uh, be talking about this subject matter for your podcast, so I appreciate that. That's exciting. So, so John, for those maybe who know or don't know, is the uh, editor of Insights, which is the uh, magazine of the Uniting Church in the Synod of New South Wales and ACT. Uh, he has a doctorate in communications and he tutors at UNSW, and uh, he has written a book, which I am very excited to talk about. Where The book is, uh, again, John, how am I going to say it? Gambura? Gambaru is fine. Gambaru? Um, a lot of people that speak Japanese better than me have these great ways of pronouncing Gambaru and all these sort of ways of saying it that I'm just no good at. So, yeah, just Gambaru, basically. Gambaru. So, and how all Japan pro wrestling survived the year 2000 roster split. So, yeah, Jonathan and I fall in a little circle of uh, uniting church folk who are also passionate about wrestling. Uh, and a couple of years ago, we recorded a couple of podcasts that that are not on the Love Ritter's Repeat feed, but it showed up in Insights, which kind of explored, you know, the intersection between wrestling and church theology, what the church might glean from the world of pro wrestling and generally just, a, a, you know, we, and those conversations always just ended up with us predicting whatever WrestleMania was coming up. So, um but now we're going to talk about this book, uh, which I'm really excited about. So just give folk who are tuning in uh, either because they found this because they're passionate about the subject or they're just the usual listeners and they're not sure what this is all about. Just the broad pitch of, you know, what's the story about? Like, you know, this, this is a work of history. What's this work about? And I guess what drew you to, to wanting to write this book and, and spend some time with these people and this, and this event? So obviously um, anyone that, follows my day-to-day work or is watching this because you're involved in the United Church, know that I write about theology or I write about United Church stuff for a living. That's how I do the majority of my, my income is United Church Matters with, with insights. So generally I wanted to write about something different and, you know, a lot of my, my interests happen to be quite different things from that. So uh, I've been kicking around the idea of writing something long again for a while. Most of what you write with insights are short 350 or 500 word updates, or on occasion I might get a long form article, which might be anywhere between two to 3000 words, but certainly nothing much more than that. So ever since I finished my PhD, I hadn't really written anything much longer than these kinds of pieces. I wanted to get back into doing something longer and developing that, sort of seeing how that went. And sort of beyond that too, I guess part of it is as well is just simply that the idea had been circulating in my brain at some point since I go into this in in the forward a little bit, or Fumi Saito does um, a a little bit in his forward, but I had basically been uh, interested in the story of the split since it happened in 2000 when I was in high school, but... Uh, I was surprised at the start of the pandemic to find that no one had written about the split. So there'd been no books about this beforehand. I thought there was rife for an explanation as to the internal goings on because it's an oftentimes misunderstood subject matter. And um, so I had the opportunity because we had our second lockdown and 
uh, basically with a lot of extra time on my hands and with the kinds of uh, considerations toward wanting to write something, um, it has to be something different to what I write about day to day. So mm -hmm. uh, I think there's literally one line in there about theology. <laughs> I go a little bit into Noah's Ark. And I'm sure there are plenty of other themes, though, that people could tease from this work if you're to look at the story behind what I go into and the story behind Gumbutter, um, there's going to be other themes there that are to do with family, to do with forgiveness, reconciliation, or a lack of that in the case of the split. And I think there's going to be plenty of other themes we could tease out for that. So it's not a theological work. Um, I kind of feel like I've looked at some of the other guests that you had and some of the people that have explored such incredible kind of concepts on, on your podcast as far as theology of race and uh, some of the ways in uh, which people have deconstructed their context and everything that goes into a contextual theology. And here I am talking about pro wrestling, but oh, it's um, great. we love, it, we it love the talk. We love to take these little yeah. sojourns into other topics, uh, be it poetry or pro wrestling. Yeah. Uh, so well, yeah, I guess I am interested in there because you write in the intro talking about like there's three audiences kind of for this book. Yeah. There's folks who know the story, right, or at least know the story that's out there, right, have heard, you know, know about the split, know what has been said about it, and you're kind of a bit of an intervention into saying actually there's a lot that hasn't been said or the stuff that has been said is, is coming from a particular kind of axe to grind or vantage point. So there's that crew. There's general wrestling fans um, who maybe know about New Japan, particularly in the last, you know, over the last decade or so where it's kind of pushed into the American market and the Western market a lot more, but don't know really about this smaller company, at least at the time, you know, that, that no longer. Um, and then, as you say, this other group who are the people who you kind of compare to who watch like um, Vice documentaries <laughs> or, or things like that about, uh, about wrestling, who don't really get interested in wrestling, but... This is just, a, you know, people who watch documentaries about topics they're not or read books about topics they're not fluent in just because, as you say, there's a story there that touches on um, other things. And you kind of touched a little bit on some of those themes. But I guess what for you, when you were kind of first starting to consider this split and read about it, that gave you that indication that actually there is something in here for that third audience? Because probably on the surface, it's like, yeah, you, you realise there wasn't stuff written about it from a wrestling perspective that would hit those first two audiences. Was it something you thought from the beginning or was it more as you went in, you're like, actually, there's a bigger, broader story here that someone not really interested in the minutiae of pro wrestling would still be, you know, drawn in to the drama of this split and the, and the figures within. Yeah, so there were two instances. So I had a few people that helped me with writing this in the editing stages and one of them was... I, I'll try not to spoil too much of the narrative of this book, but um, I think it's a fairly well-known fact that the two people that I'm primarily writing out about are Mitsuharu Misawa, who split off from All Japan in 2000, formed his own company, took most of the roster with him, and Motoko Baba, um, who was the, at that point, the owner of All Japan, um, the one who inherited the company from her late husband, Shohai Baba, and that these are the two central figures of the book. Um, and neither are with us any longer, that they both passed away at different points. So both of them are gone. They, they, um, I, they, I go into exactly how in the book, but 
um, at the end of their story and at the point in which um, I had to discuss exactly how both of them are no longer with us and how they both passed and the end of what happened there, um, I had to hand that over to my wife who was doing the first readover and she said, this is very sad. Mm. And she's not a wrestling fan. She's someone who has uh, been to a bunch of wrestling shows with me in Japan and um, seemed to enjoy that. The live experience is quite incredible in Japan to, to see a live Japanese audience um, is great. But not a wrestling fan. Um, she was deeply affected by this narrative on that level. Like she'd mentioned that it's, it's a sad story in its way. There's a tragedy to what mm. we're talking about here. It's the story of, in many ways, this family that split and that um, there was, I think, an absence of reconciliation at the center of um, the split. I think there's, uh, from what my wife was telling me at least, that there's an element there of tragedy to the entire narrative. Um, that was the first person. The second person was a another fan, a friend of mine who's not a wrestling fan, who was my other editor on this work um, at that stage, uh, Catherine Grocott, who I mentioned in the acknowledgement page as being someone who was in a Bible study with me some years ago now. And she's not a wrestling fan, but she read through it for me to make sure at that, that stage of the draft that there's some sense of narrative to it. And she left saying, that she got stuck into and sucked into the, and this is her phrase of putting it, her, her words here, but the soap opera of the thing. So she said that like she got caught up in that. And to me, that sort of was an early indicator that there's something more universal to the story of all Japan in the 2000s um, when it comes to Matoko Baba as a woman in a man's industry, oftentimes misunderstood, oftentimes castigated as being this person who caused the split and was responsible for that and gets all the blame um when i think that there's a much richer story to her and she's a much more complex human being um mm. i think that this woman who had risen to that status who was quite wealthy but who was very generous and who made sure that all of the foreign wrestlers had turkey flown into this fairly remote island off the coast of Japan so they could celebrate Thanksgiving, that she ensured that they had on occasion enough time to, for the trainees to get out uh, of the dojo that she gave the young boys coins to go to the arcade and have the night off um, in quite an oppressive kind of condition that they were in, in the dojo, that she's worried about these human beings on that level versus the stories of her being uh, what Toshiaki Kawada called the the uh, water boiler in that she would boil over at points for no apparent reason and um, that she would get very, very angry. So there are these contradictory elements to her as a person as there are with anyone else. And I think there's an interesting human story behind that. So I got from the people that were reading it in the early stages, but um, some of my other readers haven't been wrestling fans. There's been a few other people that have just been friends and family who have read this that have said the similar kinds of things about her in particular. I think there's an interesting story there, but um, how you kind of put together the narrative and how you piece together all these parts, because it's complex. Um, Not everyone knows all the details. So that was a a challenge. Uh, All of that, I think that will be parts of that, that people will enjoy no matter if you're a wrestling fan or if you like that third grouping. Mm. Yeah. uh, Speaking of her, I was kind of struck by when you were talking about, like how so much of her reputation came because of the particular dynamic she had with her husband when he was still alive before the split, yeah. you know, and they're running it together. And 
they had developed this particular dynamic because he was so beloved and was, you know, one of the wrestlers kind of thing that, that you know, he, she would be the one thus responsible for the bad news uh, and for kind of protect, shielding him from, you know, other difficult decisions that were being made. And, you know, that, you know, is it, that's a really interesting insight into, you know, the, the culture, the, you know, dynamics of pro wrestling where one person is kind of like, seen both as you know this legendary status that needs to be protected um but then the fallout of that and, and um you know and, and what that does to how how the other is seen as this kind of um you know buzzkill outsider kind of thing yeah so that was a really you know as you say it draws out so much more complexity within within the story mm. and i think that that's the thing is like depending on who you were at the time if you were one of the people that worked with her, if you're one of the, it seems that Gaijin, the foreigners had a better experience of her or a better reputation um, of her or, or that she was known better by them um, mm. than were some native wrestlers that they had a different experience of her. Again, it's um, I think comes down to the dynamics that were at play. And that's a lot more complex than just the reputation that she had with yeah. the other ones seem to indicate. Mm. So, like, this isn't really, I guess, giving away the narrative because it's part of, like, you know, I guess the, the blur. But so when that split happens, kind of, you know, which comes you know, uh, around the year 2000, um, basically, as you said, you mentioned before, almost all the talent goes yeah. in the new company. So this really is this interesting story of once you get to that point in the book um, of how <laughs> how do you survive when there's, you know, virtually nothing left, right, or, or the building blocks of what you think, you know, you need to start a wrestling company or to start kind of, you know, any kind of performance thing, you know, it's like, well, this isn't here anymore. And it's, and it's a beginning again to some extent. And what does it mean to begin in, in, um, in the midst of crisis and with tenuous resources. And I was thinking about that and the fact that you wrote this book during COVID and during lockdowns yeah. and yeah. that, and I guess, did that play on your mind uh, much as you were doing it or, or, or were you thinking about, you know, as you're listening to politicians talking about building back, stronger and better and better than ever and uh <laughs> you know new normals and all this kind of conversation of that was happening at the same time um yeah what was it like i guess investigating and and, and thinking about that process of s- struggling to survive in the wake of the split and and the the context in which you you were writing i think i was writing in relative isolation Mm. and without having very many human beings to talk to (laughs) certainly in person and i think that was part of it i think too there was always a thought pattern there as well as to kind of what is life going to be like after all of this because there as you mentioned there are so many different kinds of visions of that that were given Mm. um but in the main i I would just say that the experience of isolation was an interesting one and that probably plays its its hand in the tone of the work and everything like that um that that was also part of the reason why I even wrote the thing in the first place was having the, the sheer time to and the kind of experience of having more time on my hands than we'd probably had before um, and realizing there was a lot of energy to writing about a different subject matter to what I'm, I'm used to writing about on my day to day. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. The, I, I, didn't, I hadn't thought about that though before as far as the building back better kind of messaging that, yeah, that wasn't a conscious thing on my part to incorporate that. But I'm sure that on some level you can't really distance yourself entirely from the context you're in when right, working on these. I'm sure that idea came back to me at some point. 
Mm. Um, I think part of it too with the split is there's this experience of um, Toshiaki Kawada and uh, Masanobu Fuchi are the two only wrestlers from the permanent native roster that stayed with them. And they have to then kind of get, we'll go into it a little bit more, I'm sure, but they have to get other people in to fill out the rest of the roster. It reminded me that little bit of a split within the United Church when after Proposal 84 passed that assembly in 2003, uh, my congregation was one where an entire congregation left, mm. our um, entire evening service, and there was a split within my kind of community there as far as our faith community went. So maybe I kind of in part drifted towards that story and, and kind of uh, was interested in what's it like from the old Japan side because mm. that Noah side as well has been – that's a story that's been told so often and mm. uh, they've got a compelling story as well do pro wrestling Noah um, tied to the biblical narrative of Noah. And so I, I feel like that story has been told quite well before. That's why I'm, I'm kind of curious about what's it like for those left behind? What's it like for those that have to build back? Mm. And it's kind of, I guess, like the slightly less flashy story, you know, because the easy narrative is like, okay, all Japan was kind of had its heyday and its glory days, but was kind of stuck in a particular mold that was maybe becoming less hip and relevant. And then so there's this, break and the group that comes out is hip and even still today like it's like there's a dynamic of noah being maybe the slightly more anti-established compared to new japan kind of thing um so yeah i guess thinking about that and spending time with the one that's yes often easier dismissed or easier seen as like oh it's still like they they hung around um you know again there's some churching analogies but um (laughs) we won't push them um but yeah, so I guess yeah, well, we can we can spend a bit into that, like of that. Yeah, what? How did maybe for you did, did much change in your opinion of or feeling toward all Japan as you lingered with them in that we've got to we've got to rebuild, we've got to bring people back, and thinking about that, and even looking in the past, right? Because you know the first um, couple of chapters, you know, detail about the thirty years before the split, uh, both in terms of the the, the place within the wider Japanese wrestling um, or not yeah, wrestling story, um, you know, so in looking at both that and then what they managed to do, as you say, we're trying to now reach out and build a roster again. Um, did you find yourself, you know, having your own kind of feelings toward appreciation of the company um, and what it was about um, impacted at all? So, my first experience of all Japan really was actually seeing them live in 2017 and them being quite a small operation at that time. Mm. Um, they had a Kurikan Hall show that did relatively good number, but definitely was by no means a sellout and seeing it's quite an impressive operation, but it's a lot smaller scale than what uh, new Japan were doing that same weekend. Yeah. And so I, from the get go from, from that experience I already had quite a good deal of kind of, this is a great product and one that's rebuilding, but one that is a lot smaller nowadays than are the other two big companies in Japan. So I already had a good deal of sympathy for all Japan. Um, the stories that I learned from this that I wasn't aware of kind of did make me a little bit more that that's kind of my home team now, so to speak, as far <laughs> as the, the rosters go, um, because they... Like, I did not know, for example, until I researched this, that New Japan tried to buy All Japan during this time, um, during a time when it would not have been a 
asymmetrical. It would have been nothing but an asymmetrical merger. It would have been the kind of thing where they could have bought them in order to kill them. Um, and so there was that. There was stuff I did not know about as far as uh, the ways in which Matoko Baba put in certain moves to keep the company alive. Um, New Japan and All Japan had a working arrangement in this time. That's how a large reason why All Japan managed to survive. Mm. What I didn't know was the extent to which that was kind of intended as the first step in a secret plan to buy out All Japan. Um, <laughs> and just things like this that kind of made me appreciate all that all the more, I think. It's definitely one of those stories where you could dig in and get really granular with some of this stuff as well. Sure, so, yeah, yeah. Um, there are certainly stories um, that come out of this that weren't true, like as far as uh, I think Matoko Baba and stories surrounding her. Um, yeah, it, it, she was known as the Dragon Lady. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's a particularly fair way of kind of, uh, from what I saw anyway, um, mm-hmm. a particularly fair way of framing her. Yeah. So I was thinking about like, so in the American scene, right, you know, and it's an old story now, but of like, you know, there was through the the 90s and probably, the, you know, the heyday golden era of kind of wrestling in America in terms of popular consciousness crowd, you know, just, just how well it was, you know, where it's placed within the culture, right? I mean, you know, compared to, you know, yes, sure, decades ago as well, but the 90s was this kind of time and it was the story of these two rival companies which were both huge, both had buckets of money and talent and it was, you know, this real head-to-head battle of two Goliaths, so to speak. Um, and then WWE buys WCW and there's one um, yep. Goliath uh, and a few small alternatives, right, that, that pop up around, but are clearly no actual competitor. Um, and the story of the last 20-something, you know, 20 years then of American wrestling is will there ever be an actual competitor? To WWE again, or is it just the era of, you know, WWE has their thing, and there's interesting stuff happening elsewhere if you care to look, and occasionally it might get a little more prominent, um, like you know, which AEW is, I guess, that story at the moment. But you don't know, will it? You know, but nothing's going to quite rival the actual corporate, you know, corporate level of and and level of fandom and engagement that WWE has, and can that be done? Um, and you know, I guess part of what you might observe is that's you know a if maybe that was a bit of a early forerunner into what has happened in media in general, right? Of there used to be a lot of large studios in Hollywood producing blockbuster films and slowly Disney is buying them all uh, and wiping them out or incorporating them. And, and more and more stuff is either you find your small little alternative over here, yay, 24 or whatever it is. And, and everything else is just like a handful of, uh, bigger things and I think you could map that onto a lot of stuff and I'm sure obviously you know Japan now is kind of a bit more the story of two companies and New Japan has this very you know the, the, the really strong prominent position particularly I guess in the terms of the imagination and knowledge of wrestling fans outside of Japan it's, it's really you know that there's but for most of them it's only going to be one that they can name unless they're truly interested and so I wonder if thinking about as you say you saw it in 2017 um, in a live show, but and it's obviously a very different kind of horse in the race now. Um, but we're the thinking about its story and its lit presence, right? The fact that it has survived and 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 persisted in different, you know, ways. Um, yeah, how that makes you think about 
this kind of broader story in terms of both wrestling or, or the media and and the place for things like this that and and it being that can be a story of triumph even if it's like we, we and we can let go of it will be a true rival right yeah, which i think yeah. is the shame that things you know when like an AEW comes up it's always like will they be able to compete and it's like maybe they don't have to yeah, like yeah. you know let the thing yeah. be over there and and focus on being in a different kind of market so yeah i'm curious about that started to come together in my yeah. head as I was reading. No, of course. Yeah. So um, to put that in context too, AEW have the backing of the Khan family who are a, a big, quite wealthy group that have a number of investments across sports. So they own the Jacksonville Jaguars. They own one of the Premier League teams in the UK that got re- uh, relegated. Mm-hmm. Um, so they are already quite a big corporate entity that have the backing of TNT, of Turner's television network there. So they have quite a corporate backing for someone that is viewed or is positioning themselves as the underdog or the alternative. Mm. Um, so that's interesting. But also in Japan, as far as the Japanese picture goes, uh, the two major players there are Bushi Road, who own New Japan and Stardom, and Cyber Agent, who now own Wrestling Noah and DDT. All Japan Pro Wrestling is the largest company that is still its own entity. It's still wholly owned by its own thing. They were dumped back in 2015, 2016 by their prior parent company. So a company called Speed Agent or something like this, um, Speed Partners, I think. Speed Partners owned them. It was a, a owner was um a guy named Shiraishi who was briefly the president of all Japan. He installed himself in that role. And then they offloaded this asset that wasn't performing for them in 2015, 2016, after making all those kinds of claims. They said back in 2011 or thereabouts that Mm. when they purchased all Japan, um, Shiraishi was making claims like we're going to compete with new Japan. We're going to be having, big shows in the Tokyo Dome. And he started a war of words against the New Japan president at the time uh, on Twitter, which was just completely unedifying. And he um, basically ended up being someone who was more of a liability for the company, or at least was broadly seen as more of a liability. I'll, I'll be hoping to get to that story one day as far as continuing this this book goes and, and, yeah. and so on and following that up. But uh, as far as Shiraishi and everything else goes, that's a whole other narrative you could tell. But... Basically, what happened from there was Speed Partners offloaded All Japan. The company went out of business. And Jun Akiyama stepped into the breach and essentially said that we don't need to be a big company with corporate backing. We can be a small entity that operates as some step between Japan's indie scene and a bigger entity like NOAA or mm. like Japan. Um, set up as a, a huge uh, sort of super indie and operating more out of Yokohama rather than Tokyo. He got a whole lot of wrestlers that were still under contract to All Japan, transferred those contracts over and bought all the IP, bought all the kinds of um, bits of things that you need to open a wrestling company and kind of hit a big reset and kind of started again back in Mm. 2016. So this is a company that has been through this process Mm. numerous times over um i don't get to tell all that story in in gumbaru because the scope of it is at least meant to be 2000 to 2002 yeah in order to tell that story i had to go back to 
the 70s, the 80s, the 90s in order to establish why is this important? For, for your lay reader who hasn't read about all Japan before, why is it important that they had to abandon the Triple Crown, um, why, that they stripped the Triple Crown champion, Kenta Kabashi, uh, of that belt or those three belts when he was leaving for Pro Wrestling Noah? These sorts of stories, you kind of have to establish why does any of this matter at all? And mm. that's what the first three chapters are. So if you're not a wrestling fan, and you're reading the book, and thank you if, if that ha- happens to apply to anyone. Um, the first two chapters in particular are going to be the most wrestling heavy of the book. The rest is more about this narrative and more about kind of from there, um, the themes of the split, the themes of this family dynamic and this family drama that plays out, um, largely because of the grief of losing Giant Barber was one of my theories. I, I don't have any proof of that, but my theory was because Giant Baba or Shohei Baba uh, passed away in 99, I think that had a, a huge role in the split because people were grieving uh, him and grief makes people do funny things and make them act mm. in ways that people don't normally act is, is my big theory yeah. to all this. Um, it seemed to come across in what I, I found from people that were uh, at the scene. So when I interviewed Fumi Saito and, and a few people other like that, um, they seemed to kind of, agree with that broadly speaking so um that's one of the major things that goes into this is the grief and the cycle there that all japan have been in. um i think they're on the up and up again now but we can go into that later um but in in the main um it's the story as you say of do they need to be as big as they they were mm-hmm. and can they even get back to that if they chose to and it, i think it's a matter there of they kind of need to decide what company they want to be in order to even decide if that's worthwhile. And I think Junakiyama, his whole purpose of that was, no, we don't need to be mm. a big player. We should do what we do well and focus on doing that. I think um, sometimes there's something to be said for not necessarily going for numerical growth as just being its sole thing. And I think there's something to be said for simply focusing on doing what you do well and your identity as, as a group. And I think group identity is a, a big important part of this story as well. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, appreciate that a lot. Uh, touching on that bit where you talked about, you know, the grief and, and, you know, so much of this happening in the wake of grief and what that did. And I think also you point out that, you know, Giant Baba played a very, you know, between your two main characters often played this kind of peacemaking or mediating force, or at least was a third within who both and yeah. both loved and admired and had this relationship to. So it was always like, you know, almost this like slightly circuit breaker thing between the two um, other figures that charges up. And when that gets removed, um, you know, not only is there the grief, but there's also the a needing to learn a new process that wasn't established of how the two work together, or you know, without um, him being able to, you know, whatever, either, you know, very tangible things or even just that kind of intangible presence, um, you know, sounding board kind of thing, um, you know, is an interesting thing. And obviously that, that again, I think also plays into the kind of, I guess, broader universality of this story of how many institutions, you know, which, which particularly are built around a central kind of personality and figure and everyone kind of, and, and even you can see these probably like you know this is a story that probably families deal with of, of you know a lot how much family conflict emerges at the death of a, a matriarch or a patriarch of someone who, who has a prominent role via whom 
conflict is resolved or via whom at least is the kind of sun that everything orbits around. And then when that's pulled and everything gets sucked in black hole style, things just start colliding. And, you know, there are stories of where that's navigated well and people fight but then resolve and are patient and, and ones where it, it just cannot, there's just no new way of working and so it has to be two separate kind of paths. And I think, as you say, people who are reading it will see in that, that kind of narrative something often, you know, maybe from their family or from a, a an institution, organisation or a workplace they've been a part of where, where, you know, that all too common kind of story happens. And again, that reminder of the interesting thing of where things can work with a particular culture when there is a figure with whom there is such, you know, respect and reverence and and it's built around them. And when that personality does, that's where like often the um those kind of more you know casual or less corporatized cultures can can really struggle. I mean, in that, it what was interesting was talking to so Fumi Saito writes the books um forward and I interviewed him. He's a journalist that was working behind the scenes at the time. So he he interviewed a lot of people. Um, he was oftentimes at the buildings where these things happened. Um, and Fumi told me one of the things he said was all these people are saying that Matoko Baba and Mitsuharu Misawa never got along. Mm. And he's like, why are they saying that? How do they know? A lot of this is the story we've taken as, as being true, as being mm. the kind of narrative is, you know, this is the gospel truth of this story, this situation from people that didn't know them. And he said, she was like his adoptive mother mm. in a lot of ways. That's a much more complex relationship than people think. So yes, they had these conflicts. Yes, they had a bit of family falling out, but don't take it as a given that they were never close. Mm. Holy crap. This is a, this whole story has a lot more behind that than just, you know, here is uh, two people that never got along. And I'm sure that, their conflict process was, as you described, that they had conflict and that conflict was oftentimes um, down to Shohai Baba to play mediator, play the, the one that gave the good news. Um, but in this case, I think that it's a lot more complex than we think. The same goes as another uh, story that's in there about Misawa and Kawada because Kawada stays behind. Misawa goes to form Prairie Noah lots of people wonder why did Misawa never tell Kawada? And that's the one thing I couldn't find out, but I do know that um, while Misawa never invited Kawada to go on that journey with him, um, that Kawada felt like it was an opportunity for him to establish himself away from Misawa's shadow and to be his own person and to kind of be away from this guy that was his older brother. And mm. eventually they, they got to work together in Noah later on anyway, um, when Kawada was a freelancer. But in any event, that's the story of two brothers that have had, a lot of people call that a falling out, but apparently it's more complex than that too. Mm. But they still went their separate ways. And these two people that grew up together, they were in the same high school. They lived together in the same high school dormitory. They were people that had a very intense relationship. They had backstage fistfights because of debates about direction and uh, Kawada always being in Masawa's shadows. So mm. between the two of them, you could just about tell, I know that Netflix are working at the moment in Japan on a story about all Japan women's wrestling from the 1980s. 
you could just about have a Masawa series and that would be an incredible story to tell between those two guys. I would pay good money to see that as yeah. far as the story between Masawa and Baba and the story between Masawa and Kawada. There's so much of a human family thing. That's why Masawa actually got Kawada to join all Japan in the first place. Um, Kawada actually initially agreed to go and join new Japan and he trained with them. Mm. And it was initially Misawa saying, look, you need to come here. This is a family. This is my first experience of family that you, you, you should come and join. So there's a family dynamic at the heart of this. Um, it just happened to be a wrestling promotion um, behind <laughs> all this, anything else. Um, and if this was a story about a successful IT business or a successful family owned um, sort of, I don't know, collection of stores or whatever, the story would play out much the same way. I believe I just happened mm. to all Japan pro wrestling. <laughs> yeah, you should definitely try to capitalize on the uh, the beloved, the beloved and, and success of um, of succession right now. Like you know, this kind of story. I wanted of- to not actually drop the name without but with alluding to it. But yeah, I definitely thought that this had its parallels. But the thing about succession that's different to this is all Japan pro wrestling has some good characters you can get behind. Right. Yeah. Some people in this book you might actually like. Yeah. There you go. (laughs) That that makes it quite different to succession. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I've only seen a little bit of, but I've definitely seen the parallels there. And that that was on my mind a few times as well. Yeah. Yeah. And it is, it is funny that that's so much of wrestling, you know, maybe because it comes from that old world of performance of, you know, of like, you know, carnival and circus and wrestling and all these things, you know, all wrapped up. And there are always these kind of family affairs uh, built around big personalities. Um, And part of the really interesting thing of so many of these stories now is those kind of things coming into the new world of, you know, hyper-corporate mega conglomerates, you know, and WWE is obviously a very big example of that. But, you know, that's what makes them so rich is it's often this clash of that old world style of, perform that, that the world of performance and the world of that kind of spectacle into kind of the like and that you know so built around personality and so built around you know individual desire and and, and relation interpersonal relationships and then um you know now in this modern world and that makes it very yeah very engaging so as we kind of land the plane you kind of touch this you mentioned before like that netflix doing that story which um, i'm excited about Though it does, it pains me that they're going to do this um, when they didn't like finish Glow. <laughs> I'm like, wait, so you got I the money talk, and the inclination yeah. to go, but like I a little bit of COVID just made you go, that. nah, we can't do the last season of Glow. Like, yeah. whatever. I'll bury my grievances, I guess. But if there was either, either for like another book or for some sort of Netflix series, either a story within your narrative, like, you know, I like, this is one thing that I reckon, like, I'd have loved to have spent 120 pages just on, like, this bit, or if it's, as you say, it's the bit that's happened since then, like that 2015, 2016 era, or even something that happened in the the pre-split time, just something that you were, like, as you were doing, you're like, oh, this needs its own either, you know, good historical, you know, getting to the nuts and bolts, or an actual, like, you know, yeah, a, a slightly fictionalised miniseries. I mean, probably can't pick one, but I'm going to make you pick one that really kind of thing you think would be yeah. well worthwhile. You, you'd be like, oh, man, that's the one. Absolutely, that needs the time. So I'm currently working on one of them. Mm, great. So 
I, I've said this before, uh, uh, so I can, I can say it here. Um, I'm currently working on an, a follow-up book um, yep. about what happened immediately afterward. I couldn't focus on that because if you're talking about the split, you can't talk about the Muto years. Yeah. Um, but it ha- it's there at the end, for those of you who have read it, that in 2002, that Keiji Muto puts an end to it all by getting a group behind him to purchase all Japan. And then with what you talk about, the whole corporate interest, how do you take uh, this kind of mom and dad owned business and make it more of a corporation in the way that it's conducts itself in the way that it's set up. The Muto years go into that. So that that's one. Yeah. I would have loved to have written a book though, about at the very beginning, I talk about how all Japan was formed and the dying days of the JWA, which was uh, essentially it was um, Nihon Pro Wrestling. It was the the Japanese pro wrestling group that Ricky Dozan wrestled for. That was a member of the NWA, and much like Succession, you know, the the, the head person dies, and then you've got these people that have to fight over who gets what after it. That story is the story of the JWA that after Ricky Dozan was murdered and there's a very good Korean drama film about Ricky Dozan. Um, but after he died, the story about what happens to the JWA in his absence and the way that plays out with the personalities involved and what leads to the eventual formation of old Japan, that, that was fascinating. Um, mm-hmm. There's stuff there about pro wrestling Noah and their history I couldn't go into, but they have this story as well of a family-owned kind of thing in that Misawa very much has a, a, his own family through this thing, and he's like the giant barber of this organization by himself, and then after he dies, what happens to them? Mm-hmm. And the kind of tragedy of him dying in the ring in a wrestling match leads to this idea that people have that Noah is cursed and mm-hmm. this idea that they have to overcome a lot more and there being a Yakuza scandal where it appears that a lot of their early success was caused by the Yakuza going into different offices and telling the people that are working in the office, hey, we strongly encourage you to come and buy tickets to Pro Wrestling Noah. So how much of their early success was their actual early success and how much of it was the Yakuza working on Noah's behalf and how much of the mystery that goes into that um, that whole story. Uh, there's so much more I could have written about. I had to focus on yeah. 2000 to 2002, the dynamics between Motoko Baba and Misawa and the family drama there. But there's at least three branching stories from there I couldn't help but touch on, but I think if I don't write them, I I want someone at least, someone else in the Western world, the English-speaking world, to take a crack at it because all of this has been written about in Japanese and covered well, but um, Fumi Saito is doing part of that work. Um, He's been a big bridge between Japan and the West because he's someone who was educated in America, who went to university and spent some of his formative years in the States. So he views it as part of his task to tell people about all this stuff and to kind of help do what I hope the book does, which is ease some of the kinds of tensions as far as learning about this and getting past the initial hurdle of 
finding out this information. Um, mm. A lot of this stuff hasn't really been translated before, at least not well. So I think there's a big gap there. And I'm, I'm hoping that this, for the second group of people, the wrestling fans, the people yes. who might've had some interest um, in learning more about all Japan, that they can get on board through a book like this and find out more of that information. Cause man, learning about a company in another country with a different language and a different culture that you don't understand uh, you can't help but misunderstand things from that. And I think there's a, a lesson there too, as far as translation and, and the issues involving translation. Um, I go into that briefly in the book too. There's a section on the four pillars. So there's this expression, man. It's um, the four pillars are the, the four kinds of core people in the old Japan of the 1990s. It's Kawada, Misawa, Tawe, and it's Kawada, Misawa, Tawe, and... While I always think of it being Jun Akiyama, it's not Akiyama, it's um, Kobashi. So those four guys were often called the four pillars of all Japan, right? In English, that's what they're often called, but that's apparently a mistranslation. In, according to Fumi, it's better rendered as the four emperors or the, the big four. Mm. The sh- uh, Shitano, Shitano, right? Um, however, if you want to localize that for an English speaking audience, four pillars serves that purpose a lot better. Mm. So are we going for a pure translation of the term here or are we trying to make it accessible to our audience? And mm. I think anyone that's grappled with biblical translation or grappled with any other form of translation knows that this is one of the central tensions between people. And after I put the book out, I've seen lots of debate about that. So mm. I, I'm hoping that it can further inspire such debate and inform it that little bit. That's great. Well, it is an, a really rich story and, and, and a really inviting book. Uh, and I do recommend it, especially if you're a wrestling fan, absolutely pick it up. But even if you're not, I hope this conversation has shown you that that there is, you know, a, a true drama in the midst of this story that, you know, is not lost in the weeds of, um, you know, the detail of pro wrestling. Um, you know, it, it's very much just, you know, yeah, a, a really intriguing story about power dynamics and, interpersonal relationships within a, uh, you know, a, a company in flux after in the wake of, of loss and grief and, and this story of, of perseverance and rebuilding um, and, and, and a struggle to survive, you know, against every odd, right. When it seems the most absolute logical thing is it just finishes um, after the split. So John, it's been great to chat uh, and great to hear about the book from you. And uh, I really enjoyed uh, pouring through it. So uh, folks, check out the book, uh, Genbaru, How All Japan Pro Wrestling Survived the Year 2000 Roster Split by Jonathan Foy. Link in the stuff below. Um, pick it up now. Uh, John, is there anything else you want to plug or, 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 or draw people's attention to at this moment? So yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Jonathan Foy. I talk theology, pro wrestling, you know, those interrelated kind of topics on there. Um a lot of my insights writing will be on there as well. Um, and apart from that, um, kind of hoping to continue to do more conversations like this, more kind of teasing yeah. these things out, because I think that this, you know, we think about theology, we think about that as being a discrete or different topic to mm. pro wrestling, to art, to all these things. But I think part of what you're on about, part of what I'm hopefully exploring with the book and with insights is that I think these things uh, a lot more interrelated than we oftentimes think. There's a lot of 
uh, resonances and things that connect them. So I'm, I'm hoping that the book, um, my writing for insights, what you can encounter there will hopefully leave you with that impression. And John, John, you know, if you look at Jonathan's writings on, on insights, you know, there's everything, you know, there's movie reviews, TV show reviews, video game reviews, you know, like, and, and engaging these things, you know, often from a really interesting um, perspective. And so you could find a lot, a lot there that's way beyond just the, um, you know, workings and misworkings of the Uniting Church. So, uh, you know, there's, there's lots there to be found. So do check out some of his writings with insights uh, and the magazine as a whole. Well, anyway, thanks. Uh, thanks again for joining us folks thanks for watching and listening uh have you might do uh we'll see you all next week bye